0: I don't want to close my eyes. I don't want to fall asleep because I'd miss you, baby. And I don't want to miss a thing. Asteroids destroying the planet. Time to call in Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck.
1: Fortunately, NASA have been working on something, which means we hopefully don't have to do that. The DART mission reaches its conclusion this week, and we speak to Dr. Thomas Statler, one of the NASA scientists on the team to find out all about it.
0: Who would you rather save the planet, NASA or Bruce Willis? Let us know by getting in touch via our social media pages at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website.
1: And even if you don't get any of these Armageddon references, we still hope that you enjoy episode 108 of the Space and Things Podcast. Oh
0: This thing with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney.
1: And I'm Dave Giles. And welcome to episode 108 of our podcast. How are you doing, Emily?
0: I'm doing great. How are you doing? What have you been up to this week?
1: I'm not too bad, not too bad. It's all still been a bit crazy here. We officially are out of our period of mourning, so I can smile again apparently (laughs) yes it's it's all been a bit crazy over here the coverage is relentless absolutely relentless the funeral was aired on every single tv channel other than one even the sports channels oh wow
0: yeah i have figured out what the one channel was showing i think they were showing the emoji movie which is kind of
1: yeah channel five (laughs) yep (laughs) (laughs) which is yeah wonderful in many ways anyway (laughs) Obviously, a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, we spent some time talking about the differences between Buzz Aldrin's and Fred Hayes' book. And you were saying you were going to write an article about it. And I see that it's come out on the Space Review. That's pretty cool. Do you have anything you wanted to add? Have you found out anything else since our discussion?
0: Not really. It was just kind of fun to write it. It was neat to sort of just compare and contrast, like, in depth and kind of get into, like, both of their attitudes and how they both sort of survived their very different but very similar circumstances at the same time. But it was a lot of fun. You know, it's always fun writing about the Apollo guys, you know, especially Fredo, because he's a blast. He's awesome. Yeah,
1: it's a great read as well. I really enjoyed it. I like the other references you put in from other walks of life to to give it some context. I thought that was really well done. I will, of course, put a link to this within the show notes for so our listeners can go and read it themselves. And so... We move on to this week's main topic. Now, in November of last year, NASA launched the Double Asteroid Redirection Test Mission, or DART, which I think is one of their best acronyms, if you ask me. In short, this mission is launching an object to smash into an asteroid to see if it can move it off course, as it may be that one day we'll want to do this if an asteroid is hurtling towards the Earth.
0: This particular probe is quite small and is headed for a small asteroid called Didymos, which, just to complicate things a little bit, is actually two different objects. The smaller of these is called Dimorphos and has been described as an asteroid moonlit. It's the smaller object that DART is aiming for and will impact at a speed of around 4 miles per second on 26 September. The scientists on the ground will be able to watch all this happen as the probe just released in the Italian spy this is really neat. Wow. The Italian spy probe, they have a spy probe called Licia Cube, which stands for Light Italian CubeSat for Imaging Asteroids. I'm guessing it'll view that. That's really neat.
1: Yeah, I hope we get to see that footage. That'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Me too. That's so cool. Obviously, this mission has huge repercussions for the future of our planet. NASA set up the Planetary Defense Coordination Office to come up with a plan for how to prevent the Earth getting destroyed by an asteroid impact. And while I'm sure they're also looking at the idea of landing some miners on the asteroid (laughs) and placing nukes inside the asteroids to blow them up, it would be a nice option to have have if we didn't have to put human lives at risk. So this may be a crude way of doing it, but if it works, I don't think anyone could complain. And how cool of an office title is Planetary Defense Coordination Office?
0: That is really neat. That is cool. So to help us learn all about this mission, we're speaking to one of the NASA scientists involved. Dr. Thomas Statler is a program scientist and the Science Mission Directorate's Planetary Science Division At NASA headquarters, his scientific research has encompassed a broad range of topics, from collisions of multiple universes to the structure of galaxies to the spins and orbits of near-Earth asteroids. He serves as the program scientist for the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART, mission. He is also the program scientist for the upcoming Lucy mission to the Trojan asteroids and the Japan-led MMX mission to the moons of Mars. Dr. Statler holds a bachelor degree in physics and astronomy from the University of California at Berkeley and a PhD in astrophysics from Princeton University.
1: And if all of that wasn't enough, because <laughs> right? that's... that's- Quite a lot of things going on. Before joining NASA in 2014, Dr. Statler spent nearly 20 years on the faculty of Ohio University, where he led the creation of his astrophysics research program. From 2009 to 2013, he was a program director at the National Science Foundation. Dr. Statler is a past chair of the American Astronomical Society's Division on Dynamical Astronomy and... Asteroid 9536 Statler is named in his honour.
0: That's really cool.
1: And he's also a composer of eclectic music for small and large instrumental ensembles. I don't really know what to say there. I mean, is there anything he can't do?
0: Yeah, right. He's a renaissance man.
1: I bet he's great at golf as well. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're off to a good start. Play it cool. Welcome, Dr. Statler. It's a real honour to talk to you today. First of all, I want to get the big elephant in the room out of the way. How does one end up with an asteroid named after themselves?
2: <laughs> well, uh, thanks for that question. It's um, it's it's a stranger thing than than you might think because the discoverer of an asteroid gets to propose a name to the uh, uh, nomenclature committee of the International Astronomical Union. And it has to follow certain rules, but the rules aren't very difficult. And if the rules are followed, then it tends to be approved. And there's a long and strange history to this because it used to be that there weren't very many asteroids discovered at all. And it was so really a remarkable thing. And as more people started discovering asteroids, their personalities came into play. And now there are lots of asteroids known So a lot of scientists who have made a contribution to the asteroid field have an asteroid named after them. But it's a very, very strange and eclectic club because while there are asteroids named after uh, Einstein and Beethoven, there's also an asteroid named after Phil Spector. Oh, wow. And there's also an asteroid (laughs) named after Mr. Spock, not the character, but the cat owned by the discoverer of the asteroid who really liked star trek so it's it's a very very odd club to be in
1: (laughs) that's amazing i love that
0: hysterical i want (laughs) to oh my gosh okay moving on to the reason that we're (laughs) delighted to talk to you today let's set the scene and let's discuss the origins of the dart project really what what spurred its creation
2: well what spurred the creation of dart is the recognition that We do live in a slightly dangerous solar system. That is the nature of living on a planet orbiting a star. There are things in our solar system other than planets. There are leftover bits of rock and ice uh, from the formation of the planets, and those are the asteroids and the comets. They orbit around the sun, uh, just like the planets do. And it is possible, although, although not very common, for an asteroid to be on an orbit that intersects with the orbit of the Earth. Now, that's the only time that an asteroid can possibly become dangerous. But if it is on such an orbit and Earth and the asteroid arrive at that same point, at that point of intersection at the same time, then we can have a bad day. (laughs) Now, what we've come to understand after several hundred years of astronomy is that we understand orbits and we understand gravity and If you put that together with our ability to actually launch spacecraft, it means that potentially asteroid impacts on Earth are a preventable natural disaster. And so we want to begin to develop our capabilities to do that because nobody wants a natural disaster. Nobody wants an asteroid hitting the Earth. And potentially we have the ability to prevent that.
0: Wow. So NASA has sent spacecraft to observe and uh, sample asteroids previously, such as OSIRIS-REx. That's one I can think of. What lessons have we learned from previous asteroid missions, even if they're not like a redirect type mission?
2: Oh, wow. Well, we're learning so much and it's going on even as we speak. It's sort of a golden age of uh, asteroid and comet exploration that we're in right now. The asteroids and comets, like I said, are leftovers from the time of formation of the solar system and the planets but they come from different places in our solar system and they were witness to the formation of different planets in different parts of our solar system so every asteroid is carrying a different piece of the story of where we came from in you know, a planet sense with them some of those stories have remained intact for four and a half billion years since mm. the birth of the planets others have been changed around through collisions. So for example, the asteroids in the main asteroid belt that everybody has heard of, the asteroids orbiting between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter in our solar system, most of those asteroids have run into each other multiple times. So they are collections of shattered remains of things that have gone through a lot of changes. On the other hand, the objects out in the Kuiper belt like Erakoth that the new Horizons spacecraft flew by in 2019, that thing has remained unchanged for four and a half billion years. The Trojan asteroids that are orbiting at the distance of Jupiter that our Lucy spacecraft is going to get to in a few years, those are also probably a mixture of things that are primordial and things that have changed over time. So every asteroid has a different story to tell, and every small body that we go to is surprising us in some way.
0: Okay. So, one of the objectives, if not the objective of DART, is to see if asteroids, if they pose a threat to Earth, can be redirected elsewhere. So, what are some other possible outcomes of, of crashing a spacecraft into dimorphous?
2: Uh, the other possible outcomes, well, one is that you lose your spacecraft, but that's uh, according to plan. So, it's all okay. <laughs> one of the reasons that we're doing this test, and, and of course, it is a test. Uh, We're doing this when we don't need to. There is no known asteroid that is a danger to Earth right now. The hazard comes from the asteroids that we haven't discovered yet, and that's a substantial fraction of them. Also, Didymos, the binary asteroid system that we're doing this test on, is not a danger to Earth. It's not going to become a danger to Earth, and there's nothing that we can do to it that's going to make it a danger to Earth. So we're doing this test when we don't need to in order to to develop that, that capability. Now, a big part of the test is, how does an asteroid respond to being impacted? Because we don't have the ability to do that experiment on the ground. We've got meteorites that come from asteroids but meteorites are unusually strong. They're the parts that made it through the Earth's atmosphere, avoided, break, avoided breaking up into dust, and actually made it to the ground and got found. So asteroidal materials really there on the asteroid in space are a lot flimsier than meteorites that we have on the ground. And so we can't do that experiment except by actually going there with the spacecraft. If the asteroid that that we're going to strike with the kinetic impactor is Somewhat like solid rock, you expect the impact to dig a crater, blast out a bunch of debris, and that blasting out of debris acts like an extra little rocket engine at the moment of impact and gives the asteroid an extra push, which is a good thing. And we wind up with a crater. If the asteroid is extremely flimsy and barely held together by gravity, a kinetic impact could remove one side of the asteroid. So, based on what we've seen at Bennu, the asteroid Bennu with OSIRIS-REx, and also the asteroid Ryugu with the Japanese Hayabusa-2 mission, we could have a range of outcomes at Dimorphos, and we really need to do the experiment to see what we can get and you know what are the circumstances where we really could use a kinetic impactor if we ever find ourselves in a position, position where we have to deflect an asteroid.
1: With that in mind, how important is this... Uh, Italian spy satellite, which has uh, just been deployed. What will we see from that? Or what would you guys see from that? Are we going to be able to see that as well? Uh, well, the Leachy Cube's uh,
2: satellite, oh, it's wonderful. So it's not exactly a spy satellite. Uh,
1: <laughs> it's a,
2: it's a CubeSat. It's, uh, and it's and it's the Italian Space Agency's first deep space, space mission. So I have to congratulate them because this is the first time they have put a spacecraft in, in deep space, and it's operating just great. Lycia cube was carried along on the side of the DART spacecraft. Uh, it deployed, uh, let's see, two Sundays ago on the 11th. And its job is to offset itself from DART. We don't want Lycia Cube to hit the asteroid. So it's going to fly off to the side by about 55 kilometers, about three minutes behind DART. So it gets three minutes to watch what happens to Dimorphos when DART strikes it. Probably won't see like a bright flash or anything like that. That's probably going to be too short and too dim to see at that distance. But what we do want to see is how that impact kicks up debris, what we call the ejecta, because the impact releases a lot of energy that digs a crater and the stuff that was in the crater gets blown out into space kind of along the direction that DART came in on. And that's a big part of pushing the asteroid. It's a key part of kinetic impact. Uh, you hit If you if you just bumped into the asteroid, you would deliver the momentum. But if you hit it at 14,000 miles an hour, like we're doing, you also dig a, a big crater. So Leachy Cube will see the development of that ejecta plume, see how much stuff there is in it, what direction it's going, how wide the cone is of that plume. This is all stuff that we really would love to know to help us model and interpret that impact and then work out in reverse what really happened at the surface of the asteroid
1: amazing so we've had a couple of questions from our patreon subscribers this feels like a good point for this one todd oliver has asked what's the toughest part of this mission is it simply lining up with the target uh, or is it making sure that you you gather the data or is it something else or all of those things at the same time
2: uh, the short answer is, it's all of the things at the same time. You know, it takes a huge team of people to pull off a mission like this, and a tremendous number of scientists and engineers and technicians, and contract people, and every you know everybody needed to make the whole enterprise work. And if you spoke to Uh, six different engineers on the project, you would get six different answers about Mm -hmm. what was the hardest part. There have been many challenges, one of which was building a spacecraft during a global pandemic. Of course. In fact, right at the beginning, the very first thing we needed was the core structure of the spacecraft. And the core structure of the spacecraft happened to be built in the same place where in the US we had the first major outbreak of COVID-19. And so we couldn't, get that core structure shipped to the Applied Physics Laboratory in Maryland for until two weeks later. So we started out with a delay, and that was not a good position to be in. And so the, the, the fact that the team managed to actually build the spacecraft and launch it and make everything work during the pandemic is, is quite a, a tribute to them. But in terms of what has been done before and what has never been done before, the big thing that's never been done before is having the spacecraft control system be autonomous. The last four hours, the spacecraft is guiding itself because it's far enough away from Earth that you know there's there's no opportunity for somebody to take the stick and guide it in manually because of the light travel time, the time for the signal to get there is, is too long. So it has to be autonomous and that means that the spacecraft itself or the computers on the spacecraft and the software on the spacecraft have to take the images, that are coming off our telescopic camera called Draco at a rate of one per second, analyze each one, figure out what's in the image, figure out which thing in the image is the target, figure out how the spacecraft has been moving and what it needs to do in order to stay directed right at that thing that we actually need to hit. That is a major challenge and that's the thing that has to work. That's one of the other things that we're testing in the DART test is can we build a robotic uh, autonomous spacecraft that can guide itself to a kinetic impact.
1: Todd also asked, and I think this is a good follow-up actually, is what sensors didn't make it onto this trip which you, which you had, if any?
2: Well, so this spacecraft has one job, which is to run into the asteroid. And so um, there is not a need to put other things on it. Let right. me back up a second and explain. We want to be able to to do the test. We want to be able to succeed in in, in impacting an asteroid – But we also need to know, we need to be able to figure out how effective we were, because it's one thing to smash a spacecraft to smithereens, but the question at the end of the day is, did we move the asteroid, and by how much did we move the asteroid? And that's where the double asteroid comes in, because the binary asteroid consists of two objects. There's the larger one, Didymos, there's the little one, Dimorphos, that's orbiting around it, and the good part is that it's oriented in space, such that our view from Earth is edge on, it's equator on. And so we see the little asteroid, Dimorphos going in front and behind and in front and behind and in front and behind of Didymos once around every 11 hours and 55 minutes. We know this because we see that little blockage of light. Every time one object blocks the other, the total light of the pair, and we can't see the pair separately from the ground, but the total light of the pair dips. So if you watch this in a telescope and keep measuring the brightness, you see every half orbit, there's a little brightness dip, and it repeats and repeats and repeats. And so that's how we know that dimorphos is going around every 11 hours and 55 minutes. So we use that to assess what we did, because hitting the asteroid dimorphos will change the orbit around Didymos by just a little bit. And it'll be a little bit like if you're the kind of person that wears a wristwatch, and you drop your wristwatch and damage it, and it starts running fast. You might not notice it the next day, but a couple of weeks later, you're gonna notice that it's not keeping correct time anymore. And two months later, it's gonna be way off. And that's what we're gonna do. We've been observing this binary asteroid pair for years with telescopes. We're gonna keep observing it. And in a few weeks, we're gonna see that those eclipses and transits, the in front and behind, those little dips in the light, are not keeping schedule. They're happening a little bit faster than expected. And that measurement is going to tell us what we actually achieved in asteroid deflection.
0: Okay. We have a couple of other uh, Patreon questions. Uh, James Franklin has sent this to us. Uh, DART is simply a proof-of-concept mission, although we all awaited eagerly, but are there any plans for a larger-scale test of slamming an impactor of, say, a few tons into a much larger, say, 500 meter plus object to assess the result so we are then able to calculate how large an impactor would be required for a given size object and how long we would need to divert an incoming object once discovered well that's a great question
2: uh and i could talk about it for the better part of an hour but i won't do that (laughs) so doing a bigger test of a kinetic impact is not the most important next thing to do right because like i said before we haven't discovered most of the asteroids that could possibly be dangerous. And you can't do anything about a dangerous asteroid if you don't know that it exists in the first place. So our top priority in planetary defense is to have the ability to discover all of these asteroids. We're part of the way there, and we've been doing a huge amount in the last 20 years. Some immense fraction, I'm sure it's over 95%, of all of the near-Earth asteroids that are known were discovered by by NASA facilities, the NASA-supported telescopes. And we're going to continue that because we have a direction from the U.S. Congress that we are supposed to find at least 90% of the near-Earth asteroids 140 meters in diameter or larger. We're only part of the way there. And so our next priority is going to be to develop the uh, near-Earth object surveyor mission that's going to be a telescope that will fly in space using infrared light rather than reflected opt- you know, visual, uh, visible sunlight to detect asteroids. And that that mission is in development now. We're hoping to be able to build it and fly it within a few years. And that will go a long way toward our uh, goal of being able to find all the asteroids, track them, know which ones are dangerous and have that lead time to be able to act if we ever need to. All right.
0: And James has also asked, uh, lastly, given that we have now confirmed interstellar objects past the inner solar system, and these have much higher kinetic energy compared to solar system objects, how will this change matters if we discovered one on a collision course with Earth? If we discovered a two-mile-wide object about the distance of Mars's orbit heading in at about 160 kilometers a second, is there anything that could be done?
2: The number of... Interstellar objects in the solar system at any one time is estimated to be far, far, many, many orders of magnitude smaller than the number of natural objects, and that's the asteroids and the comets. So just by sheer number and also size of things in the solar system, you know, Douglas Adams in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy wrote that space is big. Really, really big, and and that's true. And so, the likelihood of one of these very, very infrequent interstellar visitors uh, hitting the Earth is tremendously small compared to the natural hazard posed by the the objects that are already in our in our solar system. But you know, in that respect, an interstellar object is a little bit like a an Oort cloud comet that comes in from the far distant solar system at very very high speed. You don't see it until it's freshly discovered. That is uh, something that would have to be assessed separately. Every planetary defense situation is situational. You have to look at what the object is, how large is it, what is its velocity to be able to assess what to do about it. I don't want to try and speculate whether a given comet or a given interstellar object could or couldn't be deflected with a with an impactor, with a kinetic impactor with enough time. I'd have to study the individual situation. But what that does say, is that doing a single test, like DART, does not mean that after next Monday we're safe from everything. We're yeah. only part of the way there, and we're a step towards developing a planetary defence capability to protect us from these natural hazards. But we're not all the way there, and there's a lot of work still to be done.
1: Many of us have seen movies such as Armageddon or Deep Impact, which obviously depict catastrophic asteroid strikes. Aside from hiring Harry Stamper to start drilling, what things can regular people, non-engineers and scientists, do to perhaps monitor asteroids that might be in the Earth's vicinity for their own peace of mind, perhaps?
2: Well, large asteroids can be seen with uh, backyard telescopes. And I know there are a lot of enthusiastic uh, backyard uh, astronomers and regular folks who have their own observatories and uh, instrument them with terrific cameras and so uh, there are a good number of non-professional astronomers who contribute to asteroid science by doing photometry measuring the light coming from asteroids asteroids are irregular in shape they spin and so their brightness goes up and down and up and down because they're irregularly shaped objects spinning in the sunlight, measuring those rotation speeds and figuring out where their rotation axes are in space. Right? That's the kind of project that uh, non-professional astronomers can contribute to, and they've been doing this for a long time. So that's one way of getting involved in, in asteroid science. It's tough to discover an asteroid on your own, starting from scratch these days, because the easy asteroids to discover have been discovered a long time ago. You need uh, major equipment to do it. So probably people won't have a lot of success uh, doing that. But also for general interest, all of the data on asteroids is available for free to anybody in the world through the International Astronomical Union's Minor Planet Center, which is funded by NASA. And they are at MinorPlanetCenter.net and also through NASA's Center for Near-Earth Object Studies, or CNEOS, and that is at CNEOS.jpl.nasa.gov. And so you'll find a lot of resources there about near-Earth objects as well as other kinds of asteroids. Uh, And all the data you could ever imagine is there.
0: And finally, um, so planetary defense is something that we've seen lauded and criticized. Uh, Some think it's a waste of time and NASA should divert its funds and attention to more human spaceflight, you know, stuff like that. So for the non-believers, discuss why planetary defense is essential.
2: That's a really great question. And the conversation has changed over the last several years. If we were having this conversation 30 years ago, And you had asked me, Tom, can we be sure that we won't all be wiped out a week from next Tuesday by a gigantic five kilometer asteroid that wipes out all life on Earth? 30 years ago, I would have had to say, well, no, we don't know whether that's going to happen or not. But things have changed. And the main thing that has changed is that we have actually found just about all of the big asteroids that can be a danger to Earth, and they are not a danger to Earth. And so there's this fundamental shift, whether you noticed it or not, um, this risk of no knowledge has been retired. Now, unlike 30 years ago, we actually do know that we're very unlikely to be wiped out a week from next Tuesday by a a giant killer asteroid. (laughs) And so I think some of the people who disparage planetary defense as a waste of time, are thinking about that kind of scenario. The, The dinosaur killing, mass extinction causing impacts, which they would rightly say are so improbable to happen in a human lifetime, you're just wasting resources trying to find these things. Well, but now that's not the issue. Planetary defense for the foreseeable future is going to be focused not on the mass extinction causing events, but the asteroids about the size of Dimorphos, the 160, 200, 300 meter sort of asteroids, which are far, far more numerous in the solar system. And if we ever get ourselves into a situation where we have to prevent an asteroid impact, it's most likely to be one of these smaller objects. They're tremendously numerous in the solar system and those things could be regionally devastating even if you don't actually get hit by that asteroid the secondary follow on effects would affect everybody in the world and all of us now know after the last 3 years what it feels like to have something affect the entire world whether it's the primary effects or the secondary follow on effects we are are feeling that now so if you look at those smaller objects and ask what's the probability during a human lifetime that an asteroid impact large enough not to kill everybody but to affect everybody on the planet what's the probability of that it's sort of one in a few thousand per human lifetime which is kind of at the scale of the probability that your house will burn down Um, it's way more probable than your chances of being in a plane crash for instance and so that's definitely at the kind of level where, okay, you would take reasonable precautions to make sure your house won't burn down. And we should take reasonable precautions to do what we can to make sure Earth isn't hit by an asteroid.
1: That has just blown my mind. I had no idea the numbers were like that. That's absolutely crazy. Thank you so much for joining us this this evening and talking to us. This has been amazing. Uh, I've learned a hell of a lot. Uh, good luck with everything you're working on. And and maybe we'll talk to you at another point as Lucy reaches the Trojans, for example, that would be amazing.
2: That would be really cool. And and I'm sure you guys have all the information for the NASA TV broadcast on the 26th we do. and the Dart website and all of that. You can direct people
0: to that. Yeah. I'm really excited about that. That's going to be cool. Yeah.
2: We're all, we're all kind of pinching ourselves because it's, uh, it's becoming real and, um, yeah, when it gets to watching the uh, images streaming in and uh, Dimorphos getting bigger, I think we are we are all going to have sweaty palms, if uh, if not more. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. I can't wait yep. to watch all of that. Thank you so I'll much. I'll be watching. Thank you. Thanks so much,
0: guys. Holy beautiful out here. that was absolutely fascinating. And I'm kind of speechless, honestly, and I'm not usually speechless. There is
1: more chance of us getting hit by an asteroid, which would take out a region and affect the planet than your house burning down. Think about that.
0: Yeah, I think uh, that does make a great case for planetary defense, because I I can't tell you how many times I've been on (laughs) social media, you know, or, or whatever. And I've just seen people like I don't know, attack that field, you know, because like, why is NASA focusing on this? They should be focused on sending people back to the moon and stuff. And NASA is doing that. I think the attitude is, why couldn't it be like the good old days of Apollo? And I'm like, well, times have changed a bit. And I think it's, I don't know, reasonable to be a little concerned about, you know, what's going on around our planet. And if there's big, you know, I'll just be blunt, big ass rocks on a collision course (laughs) coming to get our city. I'd like to know about that, you know, so I can at least pack my car and my cats up and get the hell out of town.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. But if there
0: is a way it could be mitigated, we could send up a probe and it could just smash it, get it away from us, that would be wonderful. So I absolutely think this is essential.
1: The odd thing is when I hear interviews like that, I begin to appreciate why there are people saying that NASA shouldn't be doing the human exploration Leave that to the private companies to do that and let NASA focus on this kind of stuff because no one else is doing this kind of stuff. There's no demand for private companies to do this kind of stuff because they they won't earn from it. But this this is the kind of thing that should be government-funded, whereas going to the moon to explore, if you've got limited resources, that's the thing that should be cut. I'd like to see NASA do all of them. I yeah. like to see my own government do things like this. We're not very good at that, but you can definitely see the, why th- that argument probably has more merit when you hear the interviews like this, right?
0: Yeah, and we've done other interviews. We did the Landsat interview. You know, we've talked to people about climate, you know, monitoring and things like that. Landsat is obviously, you know, resource and land monitoring. NASA also has weather satellites. Yeah. And I have heard people criticize, like, well, why are we doing that? They should just send people to space. They shouldn't get involved. Well, if there was a hurricane headed right towards your city, wouldn't you like to know about it? You know? (laughs) I would. You know, I would like to get be able to be like, okay, there's a hurricane coming straight at us. You know what? We're going to get the heck out of Dodge so we don't die. Yeah, This is kind of completely different. After we did the Landsat episode, I kind of went on a... (laughs) exploring binge and i started looking at how much my area central florida has changed since the 70s and i was just shocked because i wasn't alive back then it's like we grew whole new infrastructure in that time and that's a lot of really long time and it it, it's like that's stuff that's kind of neat to know and uh, to me it's amazing that it's just it's free it's available out there to anybody can go out and access this stuff you don't have to be this engineer or scientist And it's the same thing with planetary defense. NASA has made certain resources um, available to just regular people, you know, so they can monitor these things. I think it's for peace of mind. And obviously, I think it's also very helpful for amateur astronomers who want to, like,
1: look at this stuff. What the U.S. taxpayer and the world gets from the NASA budget is crazy when you break it down, isn't it? It's such good value.
0: It's free. I mean, we're paying for it through our taxes, but... Anybody in the world could probably access it and use it yeah. for, you know, good use and stuff. Hey, I'm glad I'm paying that money.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's really quite something. This is one of those interviews that's really like, blown my mind a little bit and it's going to take a bit of time to process. Yeah. But I love it. I think it's amazing. I think that was such a good interview. So the 26th of September, which is Monday, that is when this is all going to be kicking off and there's going to be some big things on NASA TV about it. We will put links to those in the show notes and on our social medias as that's happening. So I'm sure on Monday, if you follow any space people, that the internet's going to be blowing up about this. Anytime you get any access to behind the scenes of these crucial moments of these missions like when we've seen mission control at JPL for New Horizons and so on and so forth it's always wonderful it's always a wonderful watch it sounds like it should be boring when you're just watching people do their jobs but it's amazing and I don't know if we're going to be seeing this the the images from this Italian satellite in real time as well Bruce McCandless III described it as paparazzi which I think is amazing
0: (laughs) that's true it is paparazzi yeah
1: I don't know if we're seeing that if we are seeing that as well that's going to be incredible Maybe that will take longer because obviously it's a long way away. We know that from Mars missions that sometimes we get that a few days later or a little bit later. That's fine. But I'm excited about this. Monday is going to be fun.
0: Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Probably the most fun for me watching these types of missions is just seeing people sort of achieve their life's goal. Because a lot of these people for interplanetary missions, this was like the summation of a very long period of work. Like this isn't just like... Yeah, I worked for a couple months. This is something that took up decades of my life and you're seeing the product of it. You're kind of like seeing somebody's dream come true, which is really amazing. So that's part of the excitement for me as well.
1: And Emily, we just spoke to someone who's got an asteroid named after them.
0: That is freaking awesome. That is awesome. But Mr. Spock the cat also has one, but I'm not try to. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I want my cats to have it. I'm joking. I'm joking. Mr. Spock the cat. Has I knew that's one.
1: what you were about to ask in the interview. You you're here. I'll leave it in actually. I was gonna take it out. I was
0: like, man, I would name a asteroid after like Bandit and Smokey, but then <laughs> yeah. people like a hundred years from now would be like, what the hell is Smokey and the Bandit? Like what is that? <laughs> it's the name of a very Mediocre Burt Reynolds movie and named after and has an asteroid. Like, what? Hell,
1: you're about to say it. Not appropriate. Amazing. So, as always, the the full interview is up on our Patreon page as well. So, check that out on patreon.com forward slash space and things. Hey, the ain't flat,
2: John. Wow, there's that ridge to the north. Yep, sure is. All we got to do is jump out the edge and we got plenty of
0: rocks. We start this week's space news with some sad news. Some are in it for the long haul, and cosmonaut Valery Vladimirovich Polyakov was one of the pioneers of spaceflight who was indeed in it for the long haul. From 1994 to 1995, Polyakov, who died earlier this week at age 80, undertook the longest spaceflight in human history, a record that still stands now, racking up 437 days and just over 7,000 Earth orbits aboard the Russian space station Mir. An expert credentialed in space medicine, Polyakov volunteered himself as a test subject to study if humans could physically and mentally endure extended long durations in space if, say, Mars missions became possible. While Polyakov's mood declined the first few weeks aboard Mir as his workload intensified, his mood eventually became more consistent. In addition, he was noted not to have suffered any cognitive declines or impairments in space after his return to Earth. When he did return to Earth on March 22, 1995, he insisted on walking a short distance to show that humans could walk on Mars after a long transit, which is just incredible. At that time, he held the record for most time in space, which is a record now held by cosmonaut Gennady Podoka. In total, Polyakov spent 670 days in space across two Mir expeditions and continued his medical research following his retirement from spaceflight. His pioneering long jaunt in space showed that deep space, while still full of unknowns, was and is a possibility for human spaceflight. We send our condolences to his family, friends, and former colleagues.
1: And last week, on September 15th, we also lost Brian Binney at the age of just 69. In 2004, Binney was a test pilot for a company called Scowd Composites, funded by Burt Rutan and now owned by Northrop Grumman. The company was trying to win the Ansari X Prize, which was offering $10 million to the first privately built spacecraft to fly twice into space within a two week period. The company had built Spaceship One, uh, and Benny flew the second qualifying flight on October 4th, 2004. And in this 24-minute flight, he reached an altitude of 69.6 miles, or 112 kilometers, and broke the record held by the X-15 rocket plane, which he had held since 1963. It was also the final flight for Spaceship One, which is now on display at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., this craft was the basis for Virgin Galactic Spaceship 2, although that has two pilots up front. Binny once said, I don't see any single-seat spaceships in the near future, so maybe I'm the last guy that has gone to space by himself. Time will tell, but a big loss, and we send our condolences to his family.
2: I think that we have to understand that at the deepest possible level, opening the high frontier means making possible and ensuring the survival
0: of the human race. There have been two launches this week, one in New Zealand and one in Florida. As always, full details of those launches and their payloads can be found in our show notes along with any videos that may exist. You can also find articles about all the news stories we mention. You just have to head over to spaceandthingspodcast.com or follow the direct link in the description of this podcast in your podcast provider.
1: The Webb Space Telescope has this week released its first infrared image and spectra of Mars. The satellite is about 1.6 million kilometres from Mars, which is actually really close for this telescope. In fact, it poses a problem for it as it's so much light for the instruments that it could blind the telescope, as the instruments are designed to observe objects which are much further away. You may be wondering why when we have orbiters and probes on the planet, The web is actually looking at Mars, but these images and data are extremely useful to study short-term phenomena like seasonal behavior, dust storms, and weather patterns. Alongside this data from the other craft that are studying the planet, they help us continue to build up a more solid image of how Mars works.
0: And while we're talking about Mars, the Chinese space program has been very busy New data from their Tianwen-1 Mars Orbiter and Zhurong Mars Rover have offered evidence that an ancient ocean once existed in the Utopia Planitia, I think that's how it's said, which is the vast plain which Zhurong is exploring. The scientists are working through uh, 1,480 gigabytes of raw data, which claims they have discovered hydrated minerals and the hard layer atop soil, which normally forms due to the evaporation of groundwater. And this, in fact, hints at a substantial liquid water activity over the last billion years. While this isn't a new theory, it helps to back up previous studies which have hinted that this ocean, in fact, once existed.
1: And while we're talking about the Chinese space program, closer to home, two of the Chinese astronauts, Chen Dong and Chai Chido, have performed a four-hour spacewalk on 17th of September outside the Chiangong Space Station. According to the state-run Chinese news channel, CCTV, which is brilliant, CC, I didn't... <laughs> <laughs> With the aid of a small mechanical arm, astronauts Chai and Chen conducted a series of extravehicular tasks, included the installation of extravehicular assistant handles and the extended pump set of the load circuits. They also verified the extravehicular rescue capability. And also while we're still talking about China, Bill Nelson... The current administrator for NASA, who this week is at a major space conference in Paris, was asked about the potential of cooperation with China with regards to the moon. And he replied by saying, cooperation with China is up to China. There has to be an openness there. And that has not been forthcoming. He did, however, note that there has been coordination over things like the orbit of Mars orbiters, but that he would like to see more transparency from the Chinese. Certainly, that's the first time I've ever heard him suggest that he would cooperate uh, with the Chinese on the moon. I think that's quite a breakthrough, actually. It is. He's been quite hard-nosed about China.
0: Yeah, he has. He has. Speaking of the moon, uh, just a reminder that the Artemis 1 rocket is scheduled to launch on September 27th, but is dependent on a fueling test, which is taking place on Wednesday, uh, 21st of September, which is the day after we record this, but the day before the podcast comes out, so hopefully those listening will already be able to find out if the launch is looking likely for that date. It will be the third launch attempt of that rocket. The first was scrubbed to a faulty sensor. The second was scrubbed because of a substantial leak of the hydrogen fuel. They've just replaced two sections of the fuel line and hope that this will make a difference, and they're also going to take 30 minutes longer to fuel up the rocket, in the hope that it will lower the pressure on the fuel lines. Hopefully this time next week, we'll be talking about a launch. It's weird because kind of, I've kind of forgotten about it now. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I know. It's like, it's like, huh? It's dragged on. They still have it. Yeah. It's still there. But yeah,
1: this time next week, it literally could have could have launched, which would be absolutely crazy. Which would be bonkers. Talking of bonkers and Artemis, this one actually might drive you a bit mental. So you may remember the drama that, that was going on about Who was going to be providing NASA with the lunar lander? There were three companies that bid. SpaceX, Blue Origin and Dynetics. SpaceX won that bid and then the other two protested and that took months delaying the program just for the courts to decide that the award should stand. You may remember this was something we spoke about again and again and again. Well, NASA has just released a request for proposals for a second lunar lander for the (laughs) Artemis program to join the Starship lander being developed by SpaceX. The plan will see an award announced in may 2023 and it would be a lander that would support the missions after artemis 3 which is the first planned crewed mission to the moon since 1972 and it would potentially be the lander for a crew of artemis 5 and beyond this is so confusing like (laughs) i think i understand why they want more than one lander but why did they want more than one lander then decide they just wanted one lander and now rather than go back to the ones that had previously offered staff say, we want anyone to come and offer something. It just feels odd. I know it's a different administration now, but it's just very odd.
0: Yeah, it's a little confusing. Meanwhile, talking of Starship, SpaceX fired seven of the 33 engines on the Super Heavy booster rocket, which will put Starship into orbit. It's another in a line of static fire tests, which the company has been undertaking over the last few weeks at their base in Boca Chica uh, in Texas. Hopefully, we'll see the first orbital test of this rocket soon, too. It could be a big year for new, uh, very heavy-lift rockets. And that is your up-to-date rundown of the major stories from spaceflight this week.
1: Roger. No sound good. Thank you very much for listening. That's all we've got for you for this week. But we'll be back next week with more. We've actually got backups of backups right now, <laughs> as we're unsure when Artemis is going to launch. It's, it's it's been a little bit hard to plan episodes, but we've got a lot of good stuff coming up. And you can find out all about what we've got coming up and how to contribute to our questioning of our guests by signing up to our Patreon page. We've had a few people do that this week, so thank you very much to the new people that have joined us it really does mean a lot head over to patreon.com forward slash space and things to find
0: out more and thanks to all who continue to hit the share button that really does help us out and don't forget in space no one can hear you me
1: space and things has been brought to you by and things productions